This week's podcast is brought to you by Campbell University Youth Theological Institute, or CYTI. CYTI invites students ages 14 to 18 to stand at the intersection of faith and vocation, beginning with a two-week summer residential experience at Campbell University. During the two weeks, students explore their own stories of who God is calling them to be and what God may be calling them to do. Students spend time with our faculty, industry leaders, and service agencies, experiencing and reflecting on the disciplines of social entrepreneurship, restorative justice, public health, engineering, and congregational leadership, as well as how to positively impact their communities through faith, work, and volunteerism. Our goal is for students to begin to understand their gifts, interests, talents, and passions as ways in which God may be preparing them for their work in this world. Limited space is available for the summer of 2018, June 24th through July 7th. Learn more at campbell.edu backslash C-Y-T-I or find Campbell Youth Theological Institute on Facebook. Also check back regularly for our blog posts and information about one-day student faith and vocational events in January. This is the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship's Conversations. We are bringing you stories from across the fellowship through interviews with people doing groundbreaking work and renewing God's world. Ideas, stories, and innovation from ministers, authors, and practitioners from across the fellowship and beyond. This is Andy Hale. This week's podcast will feature Trip Fuller of Homebrewed Christianity, the most popular theological podcast on iTunes. We also want to keep you in the loop of several upcoming episodes, including Hannah McMahon of New Baptist Covenant, Theology of Vocation featuring story photographers, Jack Jenkins of Think Progress, Zach Hunt, John Singletary of Baylor's Diana R. Garland School of Social Work, and stories from pastors and practitioners from across the fellowship, including a look at CBS partnership with work in McAllen, Texas, with Church Starters and Baptist Universities of America. Before we get to our conversation with Tripp, we want to make you aware of Church Works in 2018. Church Works will be held at Trinity Baptist Church in San Antonio, February 26th through the 28th. Church Works creates a space for renewal and ministry through practices of creativity, community, and worship. To teach the people of God, educators need a place to be equipped, to be inspired, and to be renewed. Church Works is a three-day event for all practitioners of education and spiritual formation in congregational settings. Visit cbf.net backslash cw backslash churchworks for more information about Church Works 2018. Trip Fuller is our guest for today. He's the creator and host of the number one theology podcast, Homebrew Christianity. Uh, I would say Trip's best claim to fame is that he's the husband of Alicia and dad of Elgin and Cora. Uh, Trip and is now a- Haven. Oh, now- you have another child. Three month old. Wow. Yeah, we yeah. don't want to forget that child because, you know, if they hear this podcast 15 years from now, they'll end up on a psychiatrist chair. Like, dad didn't oh, recognize oh. me. He's going to have all of his own issues already. <laughs> so, uh, Tripp and I met at Campbell University in the booming metropolis of Bowie's Creek, North Carolina. He went on to Wake Forest and Claremont University, where he's doing his PhD work. Uh, you're I'm li- done. I'm you're done. Do- officially done? You got to call me Reverend Doctor, Andy. Come on. In that order? <laughs> You can call me whatever you want. <laughs> I know you're living on a high right now because the Lakers won Summer League, which is a, the only thing they're going to win this year. Praise the Lord. Look, and at, th- at this point... Perseverance th- of the Lakers. <laughs> and also, you know, at this point, the Dodgers are on top of the MLB standing. So it's a good day for you. I, and I have tickets 
to see Counting Crows um, uh, this weekend. So my son, who's nine, I'm indoctrinating him into mid-90s awesomeness by going to see Counting Crows this weekend. Well, tell Mr. Jones we said hello. Oh, I'm going to tell him. So, uh, so Humber's Christianity uh, celebrating its ninth year. And uh, for nine years, y'all have been gracing our eardrums with this intoxicating combination of nerdum, brilliance, and theology. Um, and uh, for anybody who's listened to the podcast, you'll understand why it has a huge following. Uh, it challenges you to listen, to question, to think, to converse. So, so tell us about how this, this whole podcast came about. So um, I was uh, finishing up at uh, Wake Forest University Divinity School, and Alicia and I, who were both Campbell religion major grads, um, I, I think Campbell's a great place to find a life partner. Uh, um, she and I staggered going to Div School, so we didn't have multiple years. There was no one working full time, and I came out of Div School. I worked at the Pilot Mountain Baptist Association. Uh, as their church planting intern, and then got a job working at First Christian uh, Disciples of Christ in Winston-Salem. And, and, and there, after a few months, I had, uh, as, as, as a kind of permanently competitive person, I uh, kind of systematized all, this, all of my responsibilities and told the senior minister, like, look, uh, it takes me about 20 hours a week to do all that you need me to do. And he's like, don't tell anyone and just try stuff that we're not your first people to try it on. When something works every month or so, just come in and tell me what you tried, um, because uh, a lot of times the best ideas are going to come from outside the church, and then we'll just be able to support them, encourage them, and join them. And so I tried a number of things that failed, and then I started a pub theology group back in 2007 at uh, Foothills Brewing Company in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. It was brand new when craft beer was just starting to uh, appear, um, and uh, and. And I would have books, and no one read the books. And I would spend half the time explaining the book before I even talked about it. So I decided I would interview the people and send it to them on rewritable CDs. If anyone doesn't know what those are, you can look <laughs> it up. Uh, and then um, other friends of mine that were ministers wanted to use the interviews for their group. And then my buddy Chad uh, from Div School said, hey, we should just start a podcast. And I'm like, what's that? It's like, it's like talk radio, but it's on demand and you can listen to it whenever you want and you can just download it. So we started it in 2008, in March, 2008. And since then, um, the podcast has become its own thing. Like there's probably five other podcasts that are part of homebrew Christianity. The, my, like the main podcast gets between 60 and 70,000 unique listeners each month. Last year we had two and a half million downloads um, it's, there's an entire book series with Fortress Press, the Homebrewed Christianity Guide series. Uh, I, I'm, I'm editing the whole thing, but the my wrote the first one, The Guide to Jesus, uh, Lord, Liar, Lunatic, or Just Freaking Awesome. Um, and just now, the Bill Leonard wrote the Church History, uh, Guide to Church History just came out. And so the podcast became this platform for introducing two laity who ask real critical questions about their faith, and they want to think through it. Um, how do we give them the resources and gifts of the academy in ways they can engage it in their working vocational life? And so I will read a 500-page book, interview the theologian or biblical scholar, philosopher, and share it. And, and my goal in the interview is to get the best nuggets of thinking out of those individuals and into a playful, snarky version delivered as an audio file 
because the I think too long, especially in the Enlightenment, we outsourced our theological thinking, our critical reflection as a church to more and more experts. And, uh, and now the questions the experts wrestled with in the 19th and 20th century are the questions every electrician, plumber, and teacher are asking. So we can't protect um, the, the theological space to just the professionals. And my goal was to empower them. And that's why the metaphor of home brewing I use, like we give you ingredients, you brew your own faith. We don't think with you or we think with you, not for you. And that a lot of Christianity is kind of like uh, a cheap American light beer. And only Americans call that beer. And it's only good in large amounts, very cold, served upside down in Greek institutions that preserve patriarchy and hierarchy. I'm talking about fraternities. <laughs> um, and so, like, what, why can't we introduce Christianity that is flavorful and equip people to do the hard work of working out your salvation with fear and trembling, thinking critically? So that's been the goal of the podcast. And I've had um, – I, I just recorded at Wild Goose the thousandth episode. So wow! Congratulations! Um, it comes out, and well, it, it'll be out by the time this podcast is out. Yeah. We also have to stop and recognize that when you name you drop the name Bill Leonard, uh, people within CBF Life immediately the the sky begins to open, and there's this glorious sound that comes down from above. So <laughs> we'll, we'll we'll get to to your book with Bill uh, here in in just a bit. Um, let's just listen to some of these recent podcast guests: Jurgen Moltmann, Pete Rollins. Walter Brueggemann, Greg Boyd, John Cobb. When you think back nine years, what, what did you imagine this thing was going to become? And did you ever think that you would end up interviewing uh, huge names and upcoming names within the theological world? Uh, no, I had no, I had no idea. Though I don't want Pete to think he's on the level with all those other people. Uh, <laughs> Pete and I are really good friends. Uh, we were roommates for a year and a half. Uh, he comes to family gatherings. He's just Uncle Pete. Um, he, he's not Jurgen Moltmann. But uh, the uh, yeah, uh, honestly, like after the first ten episodes, I spent a lot of time writing this email to sound more legit than I really was to send to theologians, and none of them knew really know what a podcast is or the internet is back then. So, you know, in their mind, they're like, "Oh, I could be on the internet." So they say yes. And then after you have 30 or 40, then, and it goes well, then they look at the list of who's been on and they're like, this is clearly legitimate. And uh, so they kept saying yes. And to me, like when you read a book, if you take the time to read like a big, a big text and, and you're going to have questions and you're going to want to push back here or go, oh, say more about that or whatnot, then the chance to get to talk to them is just amazing. So one of the things I say to people when they talk about, oh, I'm thinking about starting a podcast or this or that, like the key in online space is not to do something that's for everyone. Don't think broadcast, think narrow casting. And, you know, if, if people are listening to this and they go listen to the podcast, half of them are going to say, that was a 90 minute, very nerdy conversation that I only understood half of. I can't believe Andy <laughs> told me to listen to this. And that's good because the other ones are like, that was a 90-minute podcast, and it was so nerdy. I didn't understand half of it, and I can't wait to listen to the other one because I am a theology nerd. Right? Like, and the fact that there's a whole community that is built out of the podcast and a network of people, there's a whole online reading group, all sorts of things have come out of it. It really came from realizing that uh, like in an online space where the 
essentially the world as the possible potential listeners, you can be super narrow. And every time you listen to Homebrewed and I'm talking to a theologian or a philosopher, a biblical scholar for 90 minutes, I'm jazzed about it. Like, um, it's some, but if I was just talking to, you know, whoever wrote the most recent popular book about religion or something, I would be bored half the time. I'd be like, Oh, that's nice. I remember undergrad. And, uh, so, so I think there's a, a real challenge when you're trying to find your voice and your platform online to like not go so broad that you are one among a million people trying to do something that plenty of other people could do. Be narrow and connect it to your passion so the other people that have that passion and interest uh, connect with you, the person, and not just who happens to be a guest or what the topic is. You know, it's one of the uh, fascinating things about following um, you since college, but also following the podcast is, you know, this started as you interviewing, I would say, it people within the theology world. And, but the tables have turned, it's flipped. You are now the it person when it comes to theology. I mean, you have the number one theology podcast in iTunes. Uh, You're producing books now that people are reading. The blog is widely read. What's that like? Um, Well, uh, I mean, I guess, and this is totally true. I bet you have this experience working with first-time senior ministers. You kind of constantly have this imposter syndrome where, uh, like, the first time you walk out and are giving a 45-minute keynote to a 1,000 people, and they're clapping when they said your name, you're like, did they hear who's talking? Like, no, N.T. Wright's talking tomorrow, <laughs> not right now. And, like, when you make inside jokes – that the only way they know them is off the podcast. And then half that room laughs and the other goes, why was that funny? And you see them whisper to their friend, like it is really nuts. Um, and, and so I think there is a big, like this imposter syndrome thing. So w- last AAR, no, wait, two AARs ago, this American Academy of Religion, it's the guild meeting for religion professors. I was doing a podcast with Jürgen Moltmann in honor of the anniversary of, the crucified God, which is, I don't know, the most influential theology text in the second half of the 20th century. And then the next day we had a book signing at Fortress and there's like the homebrewed book signing and the crucified God. Well, um, the audience of the two book signings were very different, right? You have like much older people sitting in line for the Moltmann one with their like, they, a lot of them brought their old copies and they're like, Oh yeah, I've been I've taught this twenty times, and now I'm gonna get them to sign it. And then you have like a lot of PhD students and new professors uh, hanging out with me, and I was like, Joe, just come over here, we'll talk. We don't really need to sit in a line. And after it, Moltmann said, you know, I heard how many people I heard, and at this point there were fifty thousand regular listeners. He's like, I heard fifty thousand people listen to what you do on the internet. And I was like, yeah, yeah. And he's like, I don't know if I've had that many people listen to me in a month. <laughs> and, and, and like when he said that I was, I must've made some weird face. And, and then he said, well, I just hope that the joy you have in pursuing the mystery of God remains as contagious as it was when you talked to me. Cause if you can do that, then you will have helped the church. And, and so like, it, that was kind of like a, I don't know my my podcast ordination experience where he was like you know i here's what i see your task is is sharing the joy of pursuing the mystery that we call god um so like after that then then i don't know 
I didn't feel less weird. I just felt more like I'm comfortable being in the place I'm in. And the other part, and you kind of mentioned that early, you know, well, seven or eight, the first four or five years, I regularly went after big name interviews. Now my thing is to read lots of theologians' first books and find as many of them that people don't know about and interview them. Because I think that the future of the church and its theological reflection is going to have a lot to do with us hearing and being moved by people with experiences, voices, situation, context, and such that aren't normative for the published academic theological debate. So after that experience with Moltmann, I've, I've worked a lot harder at finding guests to come on who, you know, if you're a theology nerd, you don't immediately know their name. And, um, but I read their book. It's awesome. And think you should listen. So it would be awesome if secretly like Jurgen put you on his like blacklist, like his death list. He has somewhere hidden away where he's like, this guy's getting more readers, more listeners than I ever have. At some point I'm going to take him down. Oh, that, I do not want to be on an, on a negative list of, uh, by Jurgen Moltmann. Um, <laughs> that would be bad. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, one of the things like, for example, uh, that people may not, it, it might, it, that won't make sense to people. So like, um, like last year, the big, the most downloaded episode was the one I did with, uh, Frank Tupper around his book, A Scandalous Providence. And Frank was a theology professor at Wake Div for a long time. Um, when I kind of went through my personal biggest personal crisis of faith in undergrad, I read his book and that's why I went to Wake Div. And we became friends, really good friends. And he came out to lecture at the hatchery where I'm teaching now. And we decided we were going to record a podcast. Well, you, if you were to Google like good podcasting advice, they would not say start recording a podcast at 1030 after you've had a bottle of wine and go for two and a half hours. But that's exactly what happened. And, and, and it blew all the other episodes out. And I think the reason why, I mean, one is I've talked about him for years and it was the first time he was on the podcast. But I mean, and the other was, it was like friends talking about their life experience, biblical text, and, and we didn't hold things back. And so the full-throated conversational part of theology was there. And it was in the context of like the joy of a friendship and that, uh, if you are inclined to theological reflection, finish that episode and share it. And, it, and, 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 and otherwise, you would think, oh, the Moltmann episode should have been the biggest, or the Elizabeth Johnson episode should have been the biggest, or something like that. But it was the uh, two-and-a-half-hour one. We had to figure out how to edit down to just two hours. Um, <laughs> conversation with Frank. Well, you should be that surprised. You know, one of the most widely read theology books is Table Talks with Luther, which is basically a conversation his followers recorded as he was you know an angry drunken tirade so i can imagine a two-hour episode over a bottle of wine is is not that out of the ordinary oh well normally it's not wine but (laughs) well you know one of the things you brought up uh which is a fascinating thing that you probably encounter on a day-to-day basis which is uh you know you're you're talking with all these different uh theologians all these different theological perspectives um you know and and that probably is a good way to to begin to define where we are within 
I guess, the United States when it comes to theology. There are so many different brands of theology. What are your What are your thoughts on all that? Well, I, I think the biggest the biggest thing that the kind of cacophony of theological schools of thought uh, reflects is the the problem within continuing to inherit uh, the assumptions we know don't work. And so uh, if you were to, like, in the last hundred years, you have the emergence of, like, feminist theology, black theology, liberation theology, queer theology. You have the emergence of the, the charismatic uh, movement, the renewalist stream of theology, and they have, uh, they're in the middle of figuring out what is it like to think theologically, to have a theological method out of the charismatic renewal movement. Um, you have uh, the, the trickle-down of questions around religion and science into the pews, which then demands a different type of engagement around science. You have the challenge of religious pluralism reshaped from a uh, kind of assumptive dominance Christian metanarrative of the way religious uh, pluralism was framed in the 19th century, where, oh, there are all these religions, obviously Christianity is the best one, so eventually we'll come around to in the 20th century, the initial shock of pluralism said, oh, we're all like different paths up a mountain. And obviously the top is covered in fog of mysticism and we all get there and hang out. And now we're at a place where like people are realizing how uncomfortable it is to speak about uh, the experience of a tradition that you don't exist and operate in. And so this kind of, we're all meaning and going the same direction is problematic, but not in a way of critiquing the other as either the same as us or equally wrong, but recognizing the other has their own embodied existence in, in reality, and it's hard to speak uh, for a, a, a tradition, a community you don't exist in. And so you, you have to give the other, uh, it, your religiously uh, other, um, the dignity of their own subjectivity and mystery. And so like, even the pluralism question continues to be reframed. And I think the all these different schools of thought are coming from questions where the experience and lived reality and challenges of more parts of the body of Christ are now theologically uh, uh, valid places to speak from. And the second part is that we're living more and more in a society where God is not a uh, assumption. Like if you went back 500 years and said, Hey, do you believe in God? People look at you and go, what does that question even mean? (laughs) Not because they don't, they just didn't know no was an option. And now God is not a given. Um, and, and the relationship of the reality of God or what you mean by God to the different religious traditions or to practicing them is, uh, is, is fluctuating. And so when we're in a place where God is not assumed and God is not necessary in the sense for a moral life or a public social order, then the way you relate to God talk theology shifts. And so the one, even one of the reasons for the podcast and homebrewed Christianity is to go like, I don't know, like I would hate to like get a lot of people to agree with me. I don't know that there's one correct answer. I just think there are lots of ways you can do it beautifully where you can ask better questions, where you can learn and gain and encounter new, new ideas. And we need to cultivate the, a healthier ecosystem ecosystem of theological reflection uh, and, and not so much n- like go for the one 
correct answer for this time in this place or the new system or something like that. Um, now, I think as an individual theologian or a community or whatnot, you can always seek for the best answer for yourself, your community, your experience, and that kind of thing. Um, but I don't, I don't think the church benefits uh, as much by one new or, you know, rearticulation of the faith as it does by a healthier ecosystem of theological reflection that uh, doesn't, um, it's kind of like theology is, should be about the cultivation of better questions and how you cultivate the question around who God is, who Jesus is and Jesus relationship to God and us and salvation or what the, what is the reality of the spirit or what's the nature and mission of the church or um, what is the future in our hope? These type of questions are ones Christians have always had, but how do we cultivate better versions of those questions given our context assumptions history and experience and to do that you have that situation the need for better theology has brought about this explosion of different theological perspectives that um you know you have a 300 year period where there are like two versions of theology battling it out and now um i mean if you wrote an intro textbook and we're going to survey all the different types of theology you would uh, finish volume one before you got through them all. Well, I mean, we're coming out of, you know, 200 years of denominationalism in different forms, which is this insulated perspective, as you said, you know, one or two perspectives on uh, theology as a whole. And what has been created within the way that we now communicate and the the different outlets by which we create communicate is uh, such a multiplicity of theological perspectives. And, you know, I, I think for people that have lived in an uh, insulated life, people that have lived uh, entrenched in a particular perspective, um, of course, it can be intimidating and they find themselves entrenching themselves more. Others find themselves more in the ability to open the circle and to have more conversations to ask deeper questions. Um, you know, as, as you encounter so many different perspectives, and of course, as I imagine, you face a lot of people who are kind of pushing back against such a multiplicity of perspectives. How do, how do you get people there? How do you get people to, to not be so insulated, not be so uh, protective, entrenched in, in thinking around one particular way of thinking about theology? Well, I, I, I think one of the things to think about is the category religion or theology, or faith, or Christianity, um, they're not stable. Like, what they've meant in different periods of history and things have changed. And a lot of times we're not aware of that. Um, and, and there's a reason, I think, in, the, in an enlightenment culture that we desire, uh, a culture shaped by the enlightenment, that we desire certainty uh, in a almost, like, addictive way like we we seek it out and so um when we realize there's a certain fluctuation of of even the meaning of terms over time and things i think we need to detach the reality of our experience of god mediated by jesus in the christian community from any particular uh organized structure of the language there's there is distance between this kind of experience and encounter of the sacred where we're like, oh my, aha, or whatever you're kind of, this poetic encounter 
with transcendence and mystery. And then we try to unpack that in religious communities through preaching, worship, prayer, uh, in hearing the stories of ancient Israelites trying to do the same, um, and the early church trying to do the same. It's describing or trying to give language to what's going on in this depth dimension of existence is deep. And, and see, like you can see people wanting to give an erasure to that space because they'd like to imagine that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John actually thought the same thing happened about Jesus and he said the same thing. But he dies on different days. Uh, one time he's like, don't call me good, only the Father's good. And the next time he's like, I am mother. You know, so like this contrast is there. The church knew it, right? The church knew that we have four different testimonies to the presence of God in Christ and in this community, and we canonized a plurality, a diversity. And actually, there's a heretic named Tatian who made a harmonized gospel where they all work out, and they condemned him as a heretic. They're like, no, we don't need a surface account of the story that then people will outsource the 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 rupturous encounter with the divine mystery by saying, oh, I believe this story. But I think we've got to another place where we're wanting to be Tatianites. We want certainty. We want clarity. We want a system. So we don't have to open ourselves up to that, that holy disturbance that we, when we encounter God in Christ. And so there's this, that depth dimension, there's that unpacking, which throughout the churches had a multiplicity uh, of stories and encounters. And multiplicity does not mean relativism, and it doesn't mean anything goes, right? There are plenty of Gospels the church didn't say are trustworthy enough to be in canon, but they did put four in there that don't agree that well, and only two of them think Jesus was conceived of a virgin. Paul didn't hear anything about it. He has hardly anything to say about what Jesus said. Matthew, Mark, Luke, they got a pretty similar uh, outline. John's got a different one. Like, they understood, they canonized a diversity of testimonies to the presence of the risen Christ in the community, and I think we need to realize that we need to leave that mysterious gap between the encounter, the experience, and the language we use, but that doesn't mean you don't keep using language and trying to describe it. And so then there's like this third stage, which I see uh, of theology, which is the unpacking of the aha, the encounter, the experience of grace, uh, the rupture of God's presence. And it, and it comes out of us thinking critically around the different confessions and stories and narratives and experiences of faith in the Christian community. And so theologians, when you're doing theology, I believe, are attempting to say back to the church in the most uh, constructive and beautiful and, and faithful way uh, the testimony that they're given that, that's coming out of the church. You're saying back to the church, here's what I hear, here's what I hear, um, here, let me tell it back to you. But you're also doing it in the context of the history of the church's confessions, right? Like you're not just listening to everyone now, you're listening to everyone that's dead and the ongoing arguments and questions through the history of the church. And you're doing it with an eye to the very questions that are shaping the anxieties in our congregations, in our countries, in our world. And, and that's the theologian's test. It's an unpacking test. But the, the, I think that desire for certainty and finality means we end up erasing the, the gap of mystery that's just inherent when you encounter the divine. Um, and when we're in religious communities and people want certainty, then they don't want God. Like that's just the people want something to function as God. But certainty, God doesn't come with certainty, right? Like the heart of biblical religion is, or these, is, is Abraham seeing three people coming that should be seen as hostile 
and they have nothing. They're thirsty. They're traveling. And Abraham sees and turns those people that should be coming as hostile. He gives them hospitality and, and turns it into this, this encounter of hospitality and friendship. And in the middle of that, the impossible is named as possible. And, and that requires uh, th like that experience, I think, is a beautiful experience of what faith is like. It's not uh, like, oh, well, I mean, this is clearly the Trinity. That's who's coming, and you got to welcome the Trinity, and you do the perichoresis dance or whatever. Like, we've managed to turn the story into all sorts of things. But, but at the heart of it is this guy who sees people who are probably in need, and he welcomes them in. And I think the church would much rather have stories that equal the correct conclusions that someone came up at Nicaea or whatnot than uh, ones that model um, like creating the space for holy mystery, creating the opportunity where enemies become friends and things like that. And, and so the, a lot of times when you're in situations as a, as a minister and people are wanting certainty, the, the worst thing you can do is give them an answer, even if they like it or don't like it. The, I think the, the challenge is for us to hand their question and their desire back to them in a way that problematized, problematizes their quest for finality and certainty uh, while affirming uh, the reality of the one they seek. Um, so one example of this, unless I'm you know, rambling too long, is when I do uh, confirmation, um, the it's a, a year long, you know, class. And I, you know, when a Baptist works at a UCC church, you change a lot of rules. Like, so I'm like, well, we can't start till we're 16 because you need to be able to drive and get pregnant before you can be an adult follower of Christ. <laughs> um, and, uh, and, and, and so we go through, and over the year we do Lectio Divina to and whatever the gospel is of the liturgical calendar. We create experiments in truth, which are uh, us spending, um, uh, a month doing whatever it is Jesus told his disciples to do. So like, uh, do not judge. We spent for a month not judging. So every day, all the people you judged, you prayed a prayer of blessing on him. And uh, what did we discover over the month? That we judge ourselves twice as much as anyone else. And my whole thing was, well, if you want to know what it's like to be a believer uh, and a follower of Christ, then let's just do the stuff. And a month of praying prayers of blessings, you thought you were writing at the beginning, for people you were going to judge in your school life and your family and stuff, that you were praying them over yourself, then you're like, that's what it looks like to walk in the way of Jesus. So we do these experiments. And every week they would come and there's a big God bowl of questions. It's like a giant fishbowl. And it just says big God questions on it. And they would put their questions in it. And every week I ran out of time and didn't answer any of them. And my assumption was that if they wanted an answer to, uh, well, do Muslims go to hell? Or why do so many Christians hate gay people? Or what's up with the atonement? That's really weird. Did God need to kill Jesus to even love us? Or whatever these questions are. They're good theological questions. But they weren't going to get the answer that shapes a life because their theologian minister told it to them. And so we left all those questions. They kept coming up, and they eventually realized I was never going to answer any of them. We get to the end of the year, and at the last, uh, the last session, or this like retreat thing, they all answered two questions. One was, you know, uh, what does it mean to be a disciple? And they answer it based on a gospel and what the relationship is. And the other question is, who do you say I am? And they answer it. And they get done sharing these, these beautiful things that you think, how did a 16-year-old do this? And then I go, all right, well, now it's time to answer our big questions. I'll read it. And if anyone thinks this question's worth discussing, um, we'll do it. 
So I pull them out. And, uh, and I, the questions that the first few months every person asks that are like, like baby theology questions, yeah, we don't need that. Don't need that. And eventually we get to like, um, you know, why would God make so many people just to, to suffer eternal conscious torment? And I'm like, anyone need that? No. Are you sure? No, no, no. And then one of the guys goes, come on, Trip. You really think if God is at least as nice as Jesus, he's going to tell us to pray for our enemies and then throw a bunch of people in hell for all eternity? Yeah, I just feel like if you pray for your enemies long enough, you realize uh, God probably doesn't keep any. And I was like, all right. I hope you all remember this when you get older. <laughs> but, I mean, I say that just because I think a lot of times theology becomes an excuse for uh, like you want certainty to avoid the mystery or you want an answer so you can say yes or no to it. And faith is about engaging the living God. Uh, and, and theology should come out of that experience, not become a means of closure to it. Uh, and so as a minister and as a, a person of faith, I try not to answer questions that then give someone permission to disengage. I want to open up questions so that people come to see theology, the wrestling theologically as part of their own piety, part of their own experience and relationship to God. Wow. I mean, I think it can be said of you that you don't give a rip about theology. You're not passionate about it at all. None. Yeah. Well, I mean, does that, I mean, does that make sense? Like I, because some people think it's funny uh, when they are my friends and I don't think they're coming to me uh, like wanting to opt out of, you know, thinking about something and uh, they find out what I actually think. And they're like, really? I would have thought something completely different because you did this, this, and this. And I'm like, well, no, I was trying to interview the person. I wanted their best ideas. I, what do you want me to do? Like halfway through an interview, like tell someone I really respect, think they're great. Be like, well, I actually think half of what you're saying is wrong. <laughs> and and so the like to me the whole podcast has been this experience of um uh or, or even think about your love of your partner right like alicia and i are about to celebrate our 15th year of marriage we met when we were 18 year olds i was a baptist preacher's kid um who was an edgy baptist preacher's kid because we church planted had a rock band and women deacons watch out and uh, and she came from like rural fundamentalist Southern Baptist, and we met each other. We fell in love, and um, got married. Now, if if we didn't allow the other to remain a mystery, then our marriage would suck. But half the amazingness of a marriage is that you give yourself to the risk and vulnerability of of a, a person who must remain a mystery part of me loving her is giving her permission to reveal herself in new and different ways um and that she the more i know about her the more mysterious she is and that's just inherent in the activity of loving someone and like god should be more mysterious than our partners but i mean like i mean you know when you do weddings and you sit down with uh, a couple that's thinking about getting married um, they're there with this smitten image that they're like down to love. And they're like, it's going to be so beautiful. Wedding. And then you want to say like, Oh yeah, yeah. Oh, it's beautiful. Now here's a trick. <laughs> the reason it's going to remain beautiful is because you know, the other person across from you is going to hurt you more than anyone else will. They're also, if you learn to forgive 
say, I'm sorry, I was wrong, will you forgive me? And there'll also be the very place joy comes into your life that you can't even imagine yet. Like what you're signing up for is fidelity to a mystery. And you're saying, I'm going to show up. And you need all of you to show up. And sometimes the other won't. And you'll have to bear with them. And they go vice versa. But this giant decision you're making, this covenant you're entering, is one where you're being faithful to a mystery, not who's in your head right now. And loving, growing, healthy marriages are ones that preserve the dance of mystery with each other's subjectivity. And theology has to be the means by which, as a church, we preserve the dance of mystery to the God revealed in Christ. And so I'm not saying, like, mystery means we don't know anything or it's relativism or something. I'm just saying an essential part of a dynamic, loving, and life-giving relationship is giving the other the dignity of their mystery, of their own subjectivity. And we have to preserve the dignity of God's own subjectivity. Uh, who God is in God's self is above our pay grade to talk about. And, uh, and it's not because we can't say anything about God or know anything about God. It's an affirmation of the reality of God that we preserve uh, that mystery in that space. And it's in that mystery and space that the infinite love of God uh, can become present and become engaged and become inactive in our lives and in the world and uh, hopefully uh, transform us enough that uh, we don't suck as much as we did when we started asking questions. I think, I think one of the most successful things, and this is something to applaud you over, is, is that homebrew Christianity has provided a space for people to, to learn how to learn. You know, uh, for many, uh, too many churches uh, have gone through the process of indoctrinating uh, members versus creating space for people to think deeply, to ask questions, to deconstruct and to reconstruct in a, in a formed and owned fashion. And I think a, a great example of that is the way that y'all have approached um, this homebrew Christianity guide series. And, and the most recent book that you wrote with Bill Leonard, uh, Homebrew Christianity Guide to Church History, which is an excellent title, Flaming Heretics and Heavy Drinkers. Um, you, you know, you've, instead of just telling people this is church history, you've created um, lenses by which people can begin to, to understand how they view what has come before us. And I think there's a, there's a great quote that comes from the book that really explains this. And, and you, you take both the baggage of church history and the glory of church history and also remind us, oh, by the way, people will be looking at back at us at some point. Uh, you said, there's a certain grace to letting those who have gone before us to live in their time, all in their dignities and in and, and their disasters. Uh, surely our own earthliness will be clear to our heirs a hundred years from now. Uh, talk about this. Let's talk about more of the approach of, of creating uh, opportunities to educate people versus indoctrinating people when it comes to theology. So um, like, that's funny that, so that, that kind of point um, came out of uh experience when I was on the book tour for the first one, the Jesus one, um, I was in, well, I don't want to name the place, flyover country. And uh, I guess a couple fundamentalists decided that they wanted to go to a brewery where I was giving a book talk and give me a hard time. And uh, they were very concerned about how I interpreted a passage in the gospel of Matthew. And um, now I don't even remember what they were saying. I was, you know, it's one of those times where you're answering questions and most of them are like positive or inquisitive and I'm having fun. And we're like in, you know, it's like, think of like 90 people in a brewery in a small room and 
my opening is like a 30 minute kind of theological stand-up routine. Then the religion editor from their paper interviewed me. And then I do Q and a for like the last 30 minutes and probably 15 minutes in people are laughing and telling stories, kind of making it more personal, uh, pastoral, that kind of thing. And this guy's like, what? Uh, in chapter six, um, you talk about this passage in Matthew and he goes on about it. And I'm like, okay, like, what was the question? I, I don't think that passage warrants your interpretation. I'm like, okay. You know, wait, was it, do you have a question or just like, that was how you felt about that interpretation? Well, what do you think about that? I think that you don't think that passage warrants the interpretation. <laughs> and he's like, how can you write a book about Jesus? You know, he goes on this thing. And I, and I said, look, here's the thing. Uh, okay, maybe I, maybe I didn't make this clear. Uh, when I wrote Trip Fuller on the front of the book, I was doing that so that you knew, and I didn't have to remind you throughout, that I actually wrote it. Not Jesus, not God, not the Holy Spirit, not even someone who's like old and wise and mature. No, me. I wrote it. Everything in there is just happens to be what Trip thinks at this point. Now, I think I put a lot of effort into it for my age. I think I've uh, wrestled with it a lot. I want to tell this story. And, and actually, like, I think the book is simultaneously an introduction to Jesus and, uh, a, and, and, a, and a postmodern apologetic for uh, a progressive version of Christianity that doesn't need to define itself by dissing conservative religion. Now, clearly, you are in a very different part of the church, and that's, that's great. And I would just like to say, um, I put my name on it, so no one thought I was speaking for anyone else. And in a hundred years, they aren't going to care what either one of us think, and they're still going to be reading the Gospel of Matthew. So I feel like we should make some new rules for theologians and Christians and ministers. You have permission to be wrong, and you have permission to change your mind. And if you do that while simultaneously recognizing we're not Karl Barth and no one's going to read us in a hundred years, then you might just want to have some more fun and joy in figuring out this whole thing. And if you want to police me, that's all well and good. I just, I, I, I do think you misunderstand the task of writing and thinking about faith. If somehow every Christian is going to agree with the way you engage some text, especially since all the interpretations we have or ones that didn't even exist for the first 500 years of reading the Gospel of Matthew. You know, and then I proceeded to tell him what Augustine thought of it and what Aquinas did. And I was slightly nerdy and passive-aggressive, but my whole point was, your interpretation, which you think is final, no one thought for the first half of church history. And, like, the biggest names of church history disagree with you. And they, like, just get over it. Like, you have been baptized in the body of Christ. You read and wrestle with these texts, and you're figuring out your life of faith. isn't that a big enough task for you? Like, why do you need to like antagonize other people and think that your understanding of your experience is final for others? Like that is just obnoxious. And, and so like, I think when we think of church history that uh, like writing the book was like, yeah, the history of the church is a full of dignities and disasters, just like we are. And we don't even have perspective to see it right in a hundred years. I hope our great-great-grandchildren will think of that conversation and go, I can't believe both of them were completely blind to the way they ignored this whole thing that's at the heart of the gospel, that if you just address it, the world would be a more beautiful place. 
Like I'm confident that the fidelity in the life of the church will bring about greater depths of beauty and truth and goodness when we create communities that are responsive. Part of passing on the faith is passing it to people who will be given the task of critiquing us. And so uh, there tends to be this these uh, problematic relationships to church history. One is I'm going to draw the line of faith, right? And you can think of those who, uh, like, you know, Baptists that think they're only Baptists are true and only just one type of Baptists are true. And basically there was no Christians at the end of biblical Christianity until, you know, like from John the Baptist to whenever my church started. And they have this like little thin line through church history of truth. And that's problematic. There are others that think the church speaks in one voice. And so they're like, the great tradition, the Christian tradition. It's like the Bible and creeds, and now everyone just has to echo them forever. Like, that's obnoxious, because we, like, you know the history of the text and the tradition. It is not mono-voiced, and uh, in, in a lot of times, conclusions are built from the powerful to censure and deny the lived experience and reality and voices of other people. And we know that to be true, so I don't think we need to read church history as, like, the story of the one true church in the macro. And then others read church history as reasons the church sucks. And this is what progressives like to do. They're like, oh my goodness, did you, did you find out that Augustine had really weird in the body? I mean, granted, uh, he lived 1,600 years ago, and those problems were pretty normative for every privileged male who was educated. But nonetheless, let's lose our biscuits over the fact that Augustine had penis problems. And let's not even read Confessions. Let's stop reading that. That's that's oppressive. Let's not read City of God and someone trying to make sense of the goodness of God, God's commitment and covenant with history, the fall of an empire, and the relationship of the church to the state. Let's not even read that because we're obviously not in historic, changing, paradigm-shifting times and could benefit from the wisdom of our elders. No, the guy had issues theologically about penises, so let's ignore him. And progressive people can read church history like, oh, well, you know, they were bad here. They were bad here. Richard of St. Victor, he preached uh, rallying cries for the Crusades. Therefore, his mystical testimony to the depth dimensions of love should be ignored. No, I see, like, when we do that, I think we misunderstand history. We need to give the grace of every person to exist in their own space, history, and location. And we hope that is given to us. That doesn't mean you have to be critical. You can't be critical of them. You just have to recognize we're all thrown in the world. We didn't pick what sperm and egg hooked up in what family and what situation and what tradition. And we're all trying to make the best out of where we find ourselves. In the history of the church, is full of people who are doing it. And I don't think when you get to know the history of the church, we can somehow distance ourselves from the way they're entangled in their spot in history from the way we are in ours. This past week, when we're recording this, the gospel text uh, in the liturgical calendar was the wheat and the tares, right? And, uh, and, and, you know, oh, someone planted weeds in our field at night, and the master sees the, his workers are going to go out and rip them up. He says, no, 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 you'll pull the good up with the bad if you go doing that. Don't go puritanical on the soil because the wheat is still going to grow, and the harvest is going to come, and God's got this it's okay. That's how it works. So when we look at church history, we may recognize something as a weed they thought was a flower or whatever. Like Martin Luther is an anti-Semite. He, he, he was an anti-Semite. 
And he was the one that rediscovered for a large number of people um, the, the, the gospel message. He was the one that it gave to the laity the text back and things. Do we want to pull the, the tares out and then re- ignore uh, the wheat of, of his own ministry and life? I don't think so. And so the church history book, what I really liked the way Bill did it was to frame the different chapters around questions, around controversies, around predicaments in church history, and show that uh, one generation's heretic is the next generation's conservative uh, in different places, and that, uh, that one problem that we think is so situated is good news later. Church history books are full of uh, different ways. Um, history becomes alive again. When you go into looking at the wheats and the tares of each period of history, you can find different fruit that weren't there then that are helpful now, and also sometimes analyzing the past and, 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 and prophetically critiquing it and engaging it then is, becomes a mirror for us to see the ways we're complicit and blind to uh, a, a problems that are just normative or part of our normal and our way of life. Did you just give us like pretty much the entire book so that we don't have to go read it or should we still go out and buy it? Oh, you should clearly buy it for all your friends. And get Bill to sign it, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely. Yeah. And um, the, yeah, I, I think you should. And the last chapter, which, uh, which I told Bill, he said he'll do your podcast and talk about it. Cause I was like, oh, I'm going to talk okay. to Andy and I'm going to talk about your book. And I'm going to say on there that you're coming on his podcast to talk about it. But I, w- I want you to go through the last chapter with him where he does like, where the num you know, like the thoughts that are, bulleted or whatever about the future of the church and the challenges it's uh it's money uh when he sent it in the first time i read it it, which i have to say is a creep the when you talk about creepy task someone that gave you your only a (laughs) minus in identity school you're like editing a book of his and i'm like hmm yeah hmm uh and this is what I was talking about. The tables have turned. You, you, you know, this is it's completely switched roles for you in the last nine years. Well, let me just say that that uh, that Bill's a part of this because uh, Bill is invested in the his students. I don't think it was because he couldn't find a place to write a church history book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's been there, done that. Hey, you know, there was a lot of questions I really wanted to unpack with you. Uh, there were that that last segment, but probably the most important is. Can you give me, listeners won't see this, can you give me the look on the guy's face when you responded to him with his question statement? Just a general, what did it look like? Oh, well, you, you know how, like while I'm talking, he starts like this and then. <laughs> and then he said, well, I guess we, we can both agree to pray about this. <laughs> It's so true, so true. Well, I guess we can. <laughs> well, um, this is this has been fun. This has been awesome. Um, uh, can I tell everybody a little bit about how they can support Homebrew Christianity? Oh, yeah, yeah. So just go to homebrewchristianity.com, and you can find all sorts of things there. If you are super nerdy and, or just are saying to yourself, I want, I want to support a podcast, then you can go to homebrewcommunity.com. And you can be like a monthly donor. It's a private Facebook group. We do our reading groups and stuff in there. Um, and you can always download all the old classes and old reading groups where we actually did City of God, um, Crucified God, She Who Is, a bunch of books like that. Um, and 
if you if you are on the East Coast, October 27th and 28th, we are doing the next uh, theology beer camp at, in Washington D.C., like right down by the Capitol. October 27th, 28th. You can go to theologybeercamp.com get the information. Um, but uh, it's like a it's like a two day uh, theology nerd fiesta. There's like a, a live podcast, happy hour. There's a whole bunch of different local craft breweries sponsor it. Um, I have a lot of my uh, uh, theological friends show up. Uh, past theology beer camps have included like Philip Clayton, Peter Rollins, uh, John Cobb came, Monica Coleman, um, like that. Like the, I know people are going to be there at this one, but it's, it's hush hush currently. Um, well, actually, by the time this comes out, you can go to theologybeercamp.com and see who all is going to be there. <laughs> so, so what you're saying is that beer camp is kind of like uh, the Comic-Con for theology? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and it's, we do them regionally, and it's like there's only 100 people. So, and all your like beer tastings and everything are included. So the goal really is it's like half super nerdy talks, half crazy fun things. And you become friends with like the two people at every church that come. So that's like, you mean I can be nerdy for two days? Yes, you can. And so the best part about it is like one, me getting to meet hardcore listeners in different places and then they meet each other and it forms communities. So, uh, I love it. And there's a number of other ones that are going to be coming out soon. You can find out there. And, uh, so in the same vein of Comic-Con speaking of, of DC comics, which is uh, kind of repetitive because it's detective comics. Uh, so DC has the multiverse, Homebrew Christianity has the multiverse of podcasts. So maybe our closing here is to tell you, check out Homebrew Christianity on iTunes, but also the Lectio cast, the Barrel Age, the Culture cast, and of course, Theology Nerd Throwdown TNT. Uh, so you can find more information about Homebrew Christianity at homebrewchristianity.com. Of course, find all those delicious podcasts and iTunes and wherever you find your podcast. Definitely. Thanks, Trip. All right. Thank you. Before we let you go, it would be an absolute crime if we didn't tell you about Cooperative Baptist Fellowship's reference and referral ministry managed by Craig Janey. If you felt led to a new church or looking to serve your first church, CBF reference and referral can help. From discernment to search and call, CBF can equip you to maximize your search with practical resources through the process. Among these resources is Leader Connect, our high-tech matching database that connects CBF ministers to CBF churches. Fill out your online profile and upload your resume today at cbf.net backslash leaderconnect. That's leaderconnect, one word, leaderconnect. As we go, we want to give a special thank you to this week's podcast sponsors, including Campbell Youth Theological Institute and CBF Reference and Referral. Be sure to visit cbf.net for more information about the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, including stories from our field personnel and church starters, along with their advocacy work and congregational work across the globe.